Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Poets' Corner, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner In Defense of Christianity. This segment is from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1, Canto 9, Part 3, Episode 25. Podcast 161 is entitled, Despair. In last week's episode, after exchanging gifts, King Arthur separates from the Red Cross Knight and Una to seek greater adventures. Una and the Red Cross Knight continue their quest to free Una's parents from the dragon. However, the Red Cross Knight is still too weak to confront the dragon, and Una knows they have a long way to go before the Red Cross Knight will be fully healed. The Red Cross Knight and Una have not traveled far before they see an armed knight galloping fast toward them. The knight was clearly fleeing from some fearful fiend. The approaching knight was looking over his shoulder, urging his horse faster. So as they traveled, lo, they gan espy an armed knight toward them gallop fast that seemed from some feared foe to fly or other grisly thing that him aghast. Still as he fled, his eye was backward cast, as if his fear still followed him behind. Alls flew his steed, as he his brands had brassed, and with his winged heels did tread the wind, as he had been a foal of Pegasus his kind. As the terrified knight drew closer, they could see that he was wearing no helmet. As we have seen in earlier imagery, Spencer uses the required armor of a knight to measure his spiritual strength. Only those knights who wore the full armor of God were prepared for battle, for as Paul said, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The knight who is riding toward them in such fury, however, obviously freeing from some terrible terror, has no helmet. Of the armor, Paul said, Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But the armor of the frightened knight is in complete disarray. In fact, he has a hempen rope around his neck, and is so dominated by his fear that he thinks neither of the rope nor of his armor. Nigh as he drew, they might perceive his head to be unarmed, and curled uncombed hair upstarring stiff, dismayed with uncouth dread. Nor drop of blood in all his face appears, 
nor life in limb. And to increase his fears in foul reproach of knighthood's fair degree, about his neck and hempen rope he wears, that with his glistening arms does ill agree, but he of rope or arms has now no memory. The Red Cross Knight cut off the fleeing knight and stands in his way. He wants to know why the frightened knight is so dismayed. He found him so senseless that he appeared afraid of his own shadow and could hardly stand still. The Red Cross Knight asks him what he is afraid of. What is he running from? The Red Cross Knight toward him crossed fast to weet what Mr. White was so dismayed. There him he finds all senseless and aghast that of himself he seemed to be afraid. Who hardly he from flying towards stayed till these words to him delivered might. Sir Knight, ahead who hath ye thus arrayed, and eke from whom make ye this hasty flight? For never knight I saw in such misseeming plight. The exhausted knight couldn't even answer. He was even so afraid of the Red Cross Knight that he stood with stony eyes as if he had looked into the infernal furies with their chains untied. In other words, as if he looked into hell itself, which held criminals consigned to the dungeons of the damned. Again, the Red Cross Knights asked him why he was so frightened. Again, he refused to answer. Finally, shaking all over, the terrified knight managed to mutter a few words. He answered not at all. But adding new fear to his first amazement, staring wide with stony eyes and heartless hollow hue, astonished stood, as one that had espied infernal furies with their chains untied. Him yet again and yet again bespeak the gentle knight, who not to him replied, but trembling every joint did inly quake, and faltering tongue at last these words seemed forth to shake. He begged the Red Cross Knight to not keep him there because the being that was chasing him is close behind. However, the Red Cross Knight forces him to tell him why he is so frightened. For God's dear love, Sir Knight, do me not stay, for lo, he comes, he comes fast after me. Eft looking back would fain have run away, but he him forced to stay and tell and free the secret cause of his perplexity. Yet neither more by his bold hearty speech could his bold frozen heart emboldened be, but through his boldness rather fear did reach, yet forced, at last he made through silence sudden breach. Finally, the terrified knight is able to tell his tale. He asked if he is now safe from the monster. Is he now free from death that he may tell his unlucky history? The Red Cross Knight assures him that he has nothing to fear, for no danger is near. The knight agrees to stay and recount his rueful story. He began that with his unlucky eyes he lately beheld a horrible scene of death. If he had not received the greater grace, he too would have been forced to die like his friend. And am I now in safety sure, quoth he, from him that would have forced me to die? And is the point of my death now turned from me, that I may tell this hapless history? Fear not, quoth he, no danger now is nigh. Then shall I you recount a rueful case, said he, that which with this unlucky eye I late beheld, 
and had not greater grace me reft from it, had been partaker of the place. In his story, he recounted that he lately chanced to keep company with a fair knight who was well advanced in all affairs. He was bold, but he was unhappy. His friend, Sir Turwin, was in love with a lady of high degree, but she did not return that love because she was proud and of high birth. She actually enjoyed seeing the knight's misery. I lately chanced, would I had never chanced, with a fair knight to keep company, Sir Turwin, height, that well himself advanced in all affairs, and was both bold and free, but not so happy as mote happy be. He loved, and was his lot a lady gent, that him again loved in the least degree. For she was proud, and of too high intent, and joyed to see her lover languish and lament. He had met his friend Sir Turwin, returned sad and comfortless. They traveled together where they met a cursed villain from whom he escaped. The villain was a man of hell that called himself Despair. At first, Despair greets them graciously telling them of strange tidings and rare adventures. However, like a snake, he slithers closer and inquires of their situation and of their nightly deeds. From whom, returning sad and comfortless, as on the way together we did fare, we met that villain, God from him me bless, that cursed white, from whom I scapped why leer, a man of hell that calls himself despair who first us greets, and after fair a reads of tidings strange, and of adventures rare, so creeping close as snake in hidden weeds, inquireth of our states, and of our nightly deeds. However, as soon as he discerns their weaknesses, and his friend's despair caused by rejected love, rather than give comfort, he attacked with deadly darts, wounding words, and foul revenge, he plucked from the two knights all hope of relief from their sorrow, causing them to hate life. He convinced them that living was hopeless and robbed them of the will to live. He persuaded them to die in order to stop all further misery. He gave the knight who was telling the tale, whose name is Sir Trevison, a rope to hang himself. He gave Sir Turwin, the other knight, whose heart was broken, a rusty knife, encouraging both to commit suicide which when he knew and felt our feeble heart embossed with bale and bitter biting grief, which love had launched with his deadly darts, with wounding words and terms of foul reproof, he plucked from us all hope of due relief that erst us held in love of lingering life. Then hopeless, heartless, gan the cunning thief persuade us die to stint all further strife. To me he lent his rope, to him a rusty knife. In horror, Sir Turwin, the miserable knight with the rusty knife, hastily killed himself. Though Sir Trevison had not been tormented by love, as was Sir Turwin, he too began to despair, even over the prospects of becoming a victim to love, and thus contemplated suicide himself. So powerful were the cunning words of despair. Fearful of death, Sir Trevison fled from despair, carrying those horrible desires of death with him, which is symbolized by the rope around his neck. Sir Trevison wanted to get as far away from despair as he could. He said to the Red Cross Knight, May God never let him hear again the charmed words of despair. 
with which sad instrument of hasty death the woeful lover, loathing longer light, a wide way made to let forth living breath. But I, more fearful or more lucky white, dismayed with the deformed dismal sight, fled fast away, half dead with dying fear. Knee yet assured of life by you, Sir Knight, whose like infirmity like chance may bear, but God, you never let his charmed speeches hear. It must be pointed out that both Sir Turwin and Sir Trevison voluntarily go to the lair of despair. Despair does not come to them. However, once in his lair, they quickly fall under his power. The two knights symbolize two approaches to despair. Sir Turwin, the knight who is in the deep sorrows of lost love, entirely gives over to despair and uses the proffered knife to commit suicide. Sir Trevison, who fell for despair's argument, began to pity himself, just imagining that he might himself one day be jilted. He too begins to harbor thoughts of suicide. However, shocked at his thoughts, he flees from despair. It should be noted that despair is not chasing Sir Trevison. Sir Trevison only thinks he is because he is still carrying the rope around his neck. He is fleeing from his own fears. Despair has no power outside of his own lair. The fear lies within. However, rather than tear the rope from his neck and cast it to the ground, Sir Trevison leaves the rope around his neck and carries it with him. As long as the rope is around his neck, the knight is still under the influence of despair. He still carries the means and the thoughts of suicide. He is actually running from himself, as Spencer made clear. But he still has a choice. Not only must he flee from despair, he must also loose the bonds of despair, or he will never be free. It is a deep allegory, as is the story of the Red Cross Knight that carries truths that are apropos to today. In many ways, the Red Cross Knight is a cautionary tale, warning us of potential dangers. Please join us next week as the impetuous Red Cross Knight, who is still in a weakened condition from his three months' imprisonment in the giant's dungeon, rather than give despair a wide berth, voluntarily goes to challenge despair in his own lair. It nearly proves fatal. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.